It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. Do you understand the power of being in a covenant relationship with God? I guarantee you, once this discovery comes to you, once this revelation is imparted to you, it will give you the wings of an eagle to soar above the battles of life and be somewhat unaffected by all the turmoil, all the conflict, all the battles of the mind and the emotions Once you discover what it is to be in covenant with God, there's a stability there, there's a strength there that cannot be achieved any other way. Now, in the last episode of Discover Your Spiritual Identity, we focused on our calling to be children of the covenant. That's a name that God has placed upon us. And our name is a revelation of our inheritance. The various names and titles God has given us entitle us to a certain inheritance from him. And this is found in Acts chapter 3, verse 25. We are referred to as children of the covenant. That means my inheritance in God includes a covenant relationship with him. Well, what does that involve? A covenant is an alliance. It is a binding agreement between two or more parties, each binding himself to fulfill certain obligations, to keep certain promises, or to be responsible in performing certain duties. Now, a covenant is much stronger, much more powerful, and much more beautiful than a quote-unquote contract. A contract is normally some kind of fused relationship or agreement between human beings that is often based on fear fear that the other party will not fulfill his or her responsibility. But a covenant, on the contrary, is based on love. It's a mutual love bond. It's a bond between you and your heavenly Father, and a bond between your heavenly Father and you and every other child of God in the family of God. Once you discover what it is to be in a covenant relationship with him, you can default to that mindset whenever you face a conflict in life, whenever you face a pressure-filled situation, you can declare, I am a child of the covenant and covenant promises, covenant commitments belong to me. For instance, Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, he is the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him to a thousand generations. So not only does it benefit you as an individual, it overflows to successive generations. If you walk in covenant with God, that makes you a beacon of truth in the world and also a conduit of blessing to other people. So a covenant is essentially a pledged and defined relationship. Let me say that again. A covenant is essentially a pledged and defined relationship. Whenever God instituted covenants 
throughout the Bible, he defined exactly what the covenant-keeping God intended to do when he covenanted with human beings in this world. And as I taught last week, there have been nine major covenants revealed in the Bible between the creator of the universe and those out of the human race who have come into a relationship with him, his chosen ones. He covenants with in order to give us the confidence we need and in order to transmit to us the knowledge of our responsibility toward him. It fuses us together with God. There's a tremendous power in fission. That's the breaking apart of atoms. Power can be released in a very destructive way through fission. But there's greater power released when fusion takes place. And I believe a covenant is like a holy, sacred, spiritual fusion that contains a tremendous amount of power that can be released. It's our identity. This is who I am. So you can raise your hand with me and we can both declare, I am who God says I am. I am a child of the covenant. Go ahead and say it. Say, I am a child of the covenant and I receive my covenant privileges by faith in Jesus' name. Now this episode, I'm going to focus on various human covenants that we find described in the Bible because the elements, the characteristics of those human covenants overflow to reveal to us the characteristics of our covenant relationship with God. Because those who entered into human covenants knew what that sacred bond really meant. And quite often in ancient days, when tribal leaders or various individuals entered into a covenant, there was the slaying of an animal and the covenanting partners would pass through those pieces of flesh. And it would be a way of showing the seriousness of that agreement, as serious as death itself. But also it was their way of calling death upon themselves if they failed to keep that covenant commitment. That's why the Hebrew word translated covenant is bereath, and it means a pact made by passing through pieces of flesh. God did that himself with Abraham when he passed through the pieces of flesh, and it looked like a smoking oven or a burning torch, that epiphany that Abraham saw as God himself passed through the pieces of flesh, and he cut a covenant with Abraham. Your Bibles, for the most part, say God made a covenant with Abraham, but the Hebrew word means cut. God cut a covenant with Abraham, and the Most High God has cut a covenant with you. And bloodshedding had to take place. In those days, it was the bloodshedding of an animal. Of course, for us, it's the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that cut a relationship, a covenant bond between us and God. Now, there are four primary human relationships that were covenantal in the Bible that I'm going to visit. And these do speak to us about our relationship covenantally with God. First, let's go to the covenant relationship between Abimelech and Isaac. I need to give you a little bit of the backstory. Abimelech and Abraham were close friends, and then Abraham passed, and Isaac, his son, became the heir. And Isaac 
and Abimelech were living in the same region. But then there was a certain point where Abimelech felt threatened by the size of the flocks and herds that Isaac had and the number of servants, and they were both occupying the same area. And he came to Isaac and asked him to leave because he said, uh, there's just a, a need that, that we part ways in order for the land to be easier for one of us to inhabit. And so Isaac went and, of course, very humbly submitted to his request and left. But later on, Abimelech felt smitten in his conscience, I suppose, that he had treated his friend's son that way, that he had asked him to depart and find another place to dwell. And he came to try and repair the relationship. And listen to what he said. Abimelech said to Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 28, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. Well, how does someone who doesn't know God see the presence of God in someone else's life? Well, I believe it was because he saw how his crops were blessed, his herds were blessed, his uh, relationships with his servants and his family and his wife. It was, it, it was all a blessed, evidently blessed life that was being evidenced with Isaac. And there was an overflow in the natural that showed that there was some kind of supernatural endowment in his life. And so Abimelech said, we've certainly seen that the Lord is with you so we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Now listen to the next part very, very carefully. Genesis 26, verse 29, that you will do us no harm. Underscore those two words in your mind, no harm. Since we have not touched you, Underscore those words in your mind, not touched you with harmful intent. Since we have not touched you and since we have done to you nothing but good. Underscore those three words in your mind, nothing but good. No harm, not touched you with harmful intent and done you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Those were the four reasons that Abimelech said, we should just form a covenant because in essence, he was saying, we're already functioning with covenantal commitment to you. And of course, Isaac had shown in like manner, the same kind of commitment to Abimelech, that they did each other no harm. They never touched each other with harmful intent. They uh, did each other nothing but good, and they lived in peace. That was a fourfold sign of a human covenant being established. And there's more to it too, because when tribal leaders or certain individuals covenanted together, it was expected to be a sharing of both burdens and blessings. If you as a covenant partner, a person who had made a covenant commitment to me and I had made a covenant commitment to you, if you went through troubles and difficulties, then I would come to your rescue. If I go through troubles and difficulties, you come to my rescue. Your burdens become my burdens. Your blessings become my blessings and vice versa. My burdens become your burdens. My blessings become your blessings. And we share the battles of life and we fight 
are common enemies because we're covenantally committed to each other. Well, if this is true with respect to Abimelech and Isaac, the son of Abraham, then you can flip this from a horizontal covenant to a vertical covenant and say, now wait just a moment. This is powerful. If that's true with Abimelech and Isaac, then I can look toward heaven and I can say, God, I'm in covenant with you. So that leads me to believe you will do me no harm. You will never touch my life with harmful intent. You will do me nothing but good and you will pour out your peace in my life because I'm at peace with you. But it's not a one-way street, because if I'm in covenant with God, yes, I can expect all those things from him. I can look heavenward and say, I believe you'll do me nothing but good. But I should also be able to say, God, to the best of my ability, with your help and with your grace, I will do you no harm. I will not harm your name in this world by not representing you with holiness and righteousness in my life. I will do you no harm. I will do you nothing but good. And I will make sure that there's peace and harmony between us because I'm in covenant with you. And if you'll do that toward me, I should do that towards you. And if you find a human being that has that kind of fused relationship with God, there is a release of power that makes you victorious in every circumstance. That doesn't mean that you never have problems because the world is pitted against us. And quite often there's major problems that we face because the prince of darkness is threatened by us. But through it all, if God be for us, who and what can be against us? Amen to that. You can shout amen right where you're at if you feel like it. All right, number two the second human relationship of four that we're going to visit was the relationship between Laban and Jacob. Laban was Jacob's father-in-law. And if you can get in covenant with your in-laws, they become in-loves. And uh, that's certainly a wise thing to do. But there was kind of a rift in their relationship because Laban was much of a deceiver. And maybe Jacob was just reaping what he sowed because he deceived his dying father into believing he was Esau, and he ended up getting the blessing that should have come from the mouth of his father upon his brother. So maybe he had to reap that, and Laban later on deceived him concerning Rachel, and he married her sister Leah instead. And he was deceitful in the way he dealt with him, on a number of levels. But anyway, it was a repairable relationship. Relationships can be repaired. But he worked for Leah seven years. He worked for Rachel seven years. And then he was supposed to work for his animals that uh, he had inherited from Laban's flocks for seven years. And about six years had gone by. And Jacob decides to leave with his wives for women that he was married to and the offspring, two of them free women, two of them bond women, and uh, all of his children and all of his flocks, he takes off under the cover of night and leaves. And Laban, of course, is very upset, and he pursues him with a number of his men, and it looks like there could be trouble. But he gets to Jacob, 
and he's furious. He says, these daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and these flocks are my flocks. But then he kind of tempers down. He's blown a fuse, but now the smoke is clearing, and he calms down, and he says, but what can I do this day to these my daughters and to their children whom they have born? This is in Genesis 31, by the way. So in other words, he's saying, it's inevitable you're going to leave, Jacob. So I want to do something today that will not only clear the air between us, but it will also overflow to a blessing to the children, to the grandchildren, to the great-grandchildren, resulting from the uh, offspring that you and Leah and Rachel and their handmaidens have borne. So he said, now, therefore, let us make a covenant, you and I. He knew that would be a powerful thing to do as they left one another to be in different regions. He said, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took up a stone and set it up as a pillar. He took a stone and set it up as a pillar. It was going to be a marker of a very important incident, a commitment that was being made so that future generations would look at that pillar and remember what was spoken there. Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And then he said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took up stones and made a big heap. And then they had a covenant meal together, which was quite normal. That's something that usually happened with a covenant commitment. And they sat on the heap of stones, and Laban called it Jigar Sehadutha, but Jacob called it Gilead. And both of those words basically mean a witness. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day, therefore its name was Gilead. And it means like the heap of a testimony or a pile of rocks that testify of a commitment that's being made. And it was also called Mizpah, which means a watchtower, because the statement was made, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. That's a very famous statement from the Bible. It's calling God to be a witness to the relationship, especially when they're absent from one another, okay? And then Laban said, this heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not pass beyond this heap, and you will not pass beyond this heap or this pillar to me for harm. So it became a memorial that they were never to harm each other, that their offspring were never to harm each other, that their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren would always honor this covenant that was made that day. They offered a sacrifice on the mountain, and then it was done. It was done. It was established. Well, what do I learn from that vertically? That's a horizontal covenant between human beings. What does it speak to me of the vertical covenant I have with God? Well, there is a memorial pillar of sorts, the Rock of Ages, Jesus, who was lifted up as a pillar when he was lifted up on the cross. It was a sacrifice that caused you and I to be acceptable to God. The blood that was shed there 
reconciles us to God because it cleanses us from sin. And in a sense, just like that memorial pillar was for Jacob and Laban, so that cross is for the father of creation and all the sons and daughters of God in this world. He will not pass beyond that cross to us for harm. It brings us into a state of acceptability in the presence of God. We are accepted in the beloved. But it should, once again, be a two-way street. If God will not harm us and make all things work together for our good because we're in covenant with him, then we should never do anything that harms his name or his reputation in this world or our relationship with him. Grieving the Holy Spirit because of unrepented sin or because of rebellion against the will of God in our lives. All right? The next human covenant we're going to inspect is the relationship between Joshua and the children of Israel and the Gibeonites, which was a wartime pact. The others that we just covered were, number one, a tribal treaty between Abimelech and Isaac, and then a family agreement between Laban and Jacob. But now we're going to talk about a wartime pact. And God warned Joshua and the children of Israel not to do this. In Exodus 34, 12, he said, Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. And then in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and 2, God said, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers you, uh, delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. And here it is. He said, you shall make no covenant with them. And so this was prohibited by God. However, the inhabitants of Gibeon heard about what happened at Jericho, where the children of Israel marched around the walls of Jericho seven times and shouted, and the walls collapsed. And so they knew these people are unbeatable. They're unconquerable. There's a supernatural power with them that is invisible and yet overwhelming enough to tear down walls. And so their hearts melted. And they probably had an inkling that this army of Israel did not intend to leave any survivors. They probably had some kind of communication. Maybe there was no Facebook in those days or social media, but I guarantee you word spread that these people intend to possess the land of Canaan. So the Gibeonites came up with a plan. They decided to send some representatives to Joshua that looked like they'd been on a long journey with moldy bread and tattered clothes and extremely filthy like they'd been traveling for weeks and weeks. And they came and requested an audience with him. And when they stood before him, Joshua chapter 9, verse 6, they said, we have come from a far country. And they're just a few miles down the road. We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. The Hebrew word is bereath, a pact made by passing through pieces of flesh. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you dwell among us. So 
how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. So they kind of doubted, but they allowed what they saw to convince them of what they were being told. And Joshua said, who are you and where are you from? From a very far country was their response. So Joshua swore to them in the name of the Lord that they would be as one people. And if you go down in that chapter, chapter 9 of Joshua, verse 15. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Now, the word swore meant they made an oath in the presence of God and called God as a witness to that sworn commitment that they had made. And then it was discovered that they were Gibeonites, not far away. And the rulers of the congregation of Israel said, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, so we may not touch them now. We will let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore. See, they had a respect for sacred oaths then that I don't think people have now. People don't really count covenantal commitment as a sacred thing to be honored at great expense if necessary. But Joshua was upset, and rightfully so, and he called the men back to him and said, Why have you lied to us? He said, you're going to be hewers of wood and drawers of water. You're going to be servants to the house of Israel and specifically to the tribe of Israel, and you will draw water for the tabernacle of God or water carriers for the house of God, which to me was not a curse. It was a blessing to serve the tribe that served God. Wow, what a privilege. But anyway, Joshua sent them out disturbed. I'm sure he was upset to the nth degree, that he had been duped and deceived into making that covenant with them. Well, when they got back home, the neighboring tribes found out that they had covenanted with Israel. They felt betrayed. And so all these other tribes came in for the kill. They were going to wipe Gibeon out and take revenge. And the Gibeonites, who had just made a covenant with Israel, sent word to Joshua and said, come and help us. Now, if I was Joshua, I wouldn't have felt like helping them. I would have said, serve them right. They lied to me, let them suffer the consequences. But he felt duty-bound by the covenant to go to their rescue. So he mustered his army. They took off after that battle scene, that uh, war that was raging. They started speedily going that direction. But they weren't going fast enough, so God got involved in the battle. And the Bible says God sent hailstones out of heaven to crush the enemy armies, and more of them were crushed by the hailstones than by, and more of them were killed by the hailstones than by the swords of the army of Israel. Think of that. God got involved in that covenant, even though they entered that covenant by deceit. And then the sun was going down and they had not yet won the battle. So Joshua did, I consider, the most bold thing to be found in Scripture. He dared to stand and lift his hand toward the sun and say, Sun, stand still in the Valley of Agilon. And it happened. 
I guess in order for that to happen, the earth quit rotating on its axis because actually if he'd understood the nature of the solar system, he would have said earth quit rotating. But even though he prayed wrong, God answered right. There's a message in that. Well, the sun stayed in its position. The sunlight illuminated the battlefield long enough for the battle to be won. But the communication I get from that is this that if God himself would shut down the solar system in order to honor a covenant that was entered by deceit, by delusion, they deluded Joshua into covenanting with them, then how much more will God honor your covenant with him because you didn't deceive your way into a covenant relationship with God you repented your way into a covenant relationship with God and humbled yourself in sincerity and honesty before him. Yes, God will fight your battles. The final human relationship is the one between Jonathan and David. And this is beautiful. John, Jonathan was there when David was interviewed by Saul in order to be Saul's armor bearer. And there was something about David that just captured Jonathan's heart. He recognized the presence of God in David's life. He recognized the anointing that he had received. And the Bible said that when David had finished speaking to Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 18, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him, as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe, the royal robe that was on him and gave it to David, his armor, and he gave it to David, his sword, his bow, and his belt, and he gave those weapons to David. David had nothing to give to Jonathan because he was a poor shepherd boy. So that speaks so profoundly of the covenant relationship you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. You didn't have anything to give him except a messed up broken life and broken heart. But he gave you his royal robe of righteousness. He gave you the sword of his word. He gave you the breastplate of righteousness. He gave you the armor of light. He gave you his own belt of truth. He gave you the bow and arrow of deliverance that would bring deliverance to you and to others. Thank God, because he loves you as his own soul. If that was the basis of the covenant between Jonathan and David, that is the basis of the covenant between you and God. The Lord Jesus Christ loves you as he loves his own soul. And because of that covenant, there's a beautiful story that I won't elaborate on, but Jonathan asked David, because of their covenant relationship, that when he was gone, he asked David to show the kindness of God to his offspring. And so David let Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was lame, who was crippled, sit at the table of the king and eat with the king all the days of his life. He was ushered into the king's chamber because of the covenant relationship David had with Jonathan. And because of the covenant relationship you have with the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been ushered into the king's chamber where you feast with God every day of your life. So those are four human covenants that speak to us very profoundly about our covenant 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to do one more program on covenants, and I urge you to be sure and listen to the next one because it's going to be about the wonder and the power of the new covenant. That's coming next week. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given His people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.